Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, Polish poet Adam Zagajewski and American translator Claire Kavanaugh speak with the director of the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute, Ilya Kaminsky. Adam Zagajewski is the author of 12 books of poetry, many of which have been translated into English. He was born in Poland in 1945, lived in Berlin and France, and has taught at universities in the United States, including the University of Houston and the University of Chicago. In 2004, he received the Neustadt International Prize for Literature. Claire Kavanaugh is chair of the Department of Slavic Languages at Northwestern University. She has translated numerous collections by contemporary Polish poets, including Zagievski, and is working on a biography of Czeslaw Miloš. This conversation took place at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in October 2012. We begin with Adam Zagajewski saying that many Polish poets have not been translated and thus remain largely unknown outside Poland. If you are an American reader or a non-Polish reader, you see, it's like with the moon, you see one part of the Polish poetry. There's another part which is not visible. The, the visible part is wonderful, and I'm, I'm not saying this in any way to diminish this. what, what the non-Polish readers can access. But there were some, at least, they deserve to be mentioned, some great poets who are either untranslatable or little translated. Um, there's this poet Bolesław Leśmian, who was a great master of the language, of the imagination, and there are some translations, but I, he's not really uh, easy to, to translate, and he, he influenced many other poets. Another poet who maybe is not so difficult in translation, he quite influential in the Polish, within the Polish poetry was Józef Czechowicz, who was actually Miłosz's friend, an older, a little older, not much older than Miłosz, and some, some other poets. So uh, I understand we'll talk about these poets who are well known here because they, they deserve it and, and we deserve it to talk about them. But I just wanted to, to, to mention those poets who are hidden in the, in the language, in the Polish language. And they, like Leśmian was, had no interest in history. He's, the, the, the Polish poets who are known abroad are those who reacted to, to the terrible history of, of the World War II, to the Holocaust and to, the, to communism. But there were poets, Leśmian had no interest in history at all. He was a, a poet of, of myth, of imagination, of uh, not really a religious poet, but a kind of post-religious poet. And uh, he's not my favorite poet, but I, I absolutely admire his, his language, his, his versatility, his, the, the, the softness of his language. With Leśmian, you always try and find an analogy. And we were talking before about Pasternak, the things that make Pasternak, both early Pasternak, especially absolutely magical and maybe not absolutely untranslatable, but so difficult to translate. It's a little bit true in Neshmian too, is that words grow out of each other in this kind of magical, it se he seems to be talking about nature, but it's about nature through language. Um, he was influenced by Bergson, I think, and there's that whole, mm -hmm. The language has a life of its own, which is mirrored through forms generating themselves in nature or something. It, you know, early Pasternak has that wonderful thing, too, where it just, what's the name of that wonderful poem? I, Sklerota, as I say in Polish, it's senility. I can't remember. It, it, it's window, isn't it? Okno? 
It's in Sistra Mayajism. Yeah, where just the whole poem swings back and forth. It's all, you know, you swing out into the garden and then you swing back and you look at the mirror and the mirror moves. This world in constant motion and language is in constant motion. And Yeshman is wonderful. I would never try to translate him. His life is too short and, you know, I'm already getting the gray hair. I don't. Um, and Chekhovich is another poet who has magic. I mean, he's, he's way more enmeshed in history. Yes, because he has some, there's the social ingredient, and his, he has this greatest poem, Jal, Grief, which is a great, great poem where the social, the political mixes up with the very existential, personal. But he was also, he had, he had many, he has many poems which are pastoral, which are about provinces, about the silence in the provinces. And so, folkloric, yeah, funny yeah. little folkloric things in them, like a little cow throating, floating through a Chagall sky or something. And they're just these little odd. Another part that it's not known, we, we, we actually have to switch to the known ones. <laughs> but let's mention Yaroslav Iwaszkiewicz, who had a long life. He died in 1980 a great prose writer and a very good poet too and, and a very that he would deserve a total another hour because he was such a character uh, in an his incredible life too yeah incredible life and 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 a very strange mix of opportunism and courage and he and in the communist times, he would be uh, friendly with the politburo members and he would uh, he would be pretty conformist at the same time. And during the war, he saved an incredible amount of people, Jewish friends, Jewish intellectuals. He had a, a, a big house which became like an ark, a Noah ark for, for survivors. So he, he, but as a poet, we talk here of poetry, um, he, he was a poet, also a non-historical poet in, in, in a way, a poet of, of um, the sadness of existence and, and of music. So the, a, a, it's a combination of, of interest and in, in passion about music and, and the sadness about the necess necessity of dying one day. Also, I'm trying to remember now, because this is, this is where I'm much worse about doing 20th century than Adam is since I had to go backwards, I started learning Polish already when I was in graduate school. And I had to, to talk about somebody who's not as well known as he should be as a poet, Stanisław Baranczak, in the States, in Poland, ubiquitous everywhere, because he's incredibly difficult to translate. And I know, I know, trust me, I know. I've tried. Um, but I, I kind of, I feel like I, I got taken home to Polish poetry at the Baranczak's house. I used to go to their house every Friday when I was in graduate school, and they were my refuge from graduate school. And I got to know poetry through them, which means you know the battles, and you know there were poets I didn't even know existed um, until I started going to Poland regularly because the Baranczak's would not mention them. They were not admissible into the canon. And then there, there were the poets who were their personal friends, like Adam, and I would have, and Richard Krinitsky, another poet who's not as well known as he should be in the States. But also, Stanisław wrote a very good book on Białoszewski, right? He wrote a fantastic I, book on Białoszewski. But I, so I, I knew, I started translating Białoszewski on one year of Polish, you know. <laughs> have you tried? Yeah, well, for then. We did, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, but, but Stanisław, so I got, 
I, I always think about the passage in, in Mandelstam's autobiography in Shum Vremini, The Noise of Time, where he says he, was, he went to um, his teacher at the Tanishev school. He, he taught in a book of two. Gipus. Gipus, yeah, Gipus. Yeah, yeah. he, he, he would get invited back to the house, and he said, I got introduced to Russian literature as a family quarrel. And that's kind of how I got into it. So I would read lots and lots of the poets they liked, and Stanisov and I would meet when I had classes and mm -hmm. meet separately and read poets. And other poets, maybe one, maybe mm -hmm. two. He, he really was not a Rushevich person. And then I, I had to go in and fill in the blanks myself. I mean, that's how I first read Adam, actually, was he was coming to give a, a, give a reading at Harvard, and Stanislav gives us his poem, and then Adam reads to go to Lvov, and it, it blew me away. So I, I, I'm all back and forward. on Yvashkevich, though, but he wasn't, he was, where was his family background from? He was Ukrainian? Yeah, from, he was from Ukraine, but yeah. from, from the, there was Polish family in Ukraine. Po Poland colonized Ukraine right, yeah. several hundred years ago, and they were they driven out from the, after 500 years. But yeah, he's... he's That's the poem. So I love, he has a lot of Ukrainian sort landscape, of landscapes. Yeah. And this is the, something that also goes missing in, in the States, is when you've been dealing with Poland in terms of people and going there, but also in terms of the literature, you become so aware of all the regional traditions and all the, the lost traditions and territories that are kind of in between that are not quite Polish. I mean, Adam's fa famous family stories are a perfect example of it. But that's, that's what I always remembered from Yvashkevich is, is just like this incredible, in Russian, kolorit, um, color. Lo local color. Local color of, uh -huh. of Ukrainian from that. Yeah, because in, in, in Polish, you have this lost limbs. Like, yeah. yeah. The amputated limbs. And Ukraine was, and Lithuania, like, like Milos. Let's Lithuania, talk for a moment about yeah. Milos. Yeah. You know, he, he was born in Lithuania, and he, until the very end, I remember he told me once, you know, I, I, I lived in California, it was very beautiful, but for me, my landscape is the, the lakes and, and the, the forests of Lithuania. This, this yeah. was his world. Yeah, and, and that's something with Miłosz, um, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a hardcore Californian because you know about California. Everybody's from someplace else. So my parents were born in Canada and my grandparents were born in Ireland. And, you know, it doesn't... But I grew up in California and for me, that's my native realm. But the thing that strikes me when I'm reading Miłosz is I now I've I've been to Lithuania for the first time ever. I was in Vilnius, and I see it even more. Is he reads the California landscape extremely well? He's a brilliant reader of landscape because he knows how saturated it is in history. And I've learned about California history from reading Miłosz because he he studied it. He knew it, but Lithuanian landscape is always in, just underneath the surface, or it's like there's there's like this embroidered other side that's Lithuania to every Californian landscape he describes and which is interesting because it's you couldn't imagine two more different yeah. landscapes <laughs> California is about yeah. dryness and and and, uh, and Lithuania is about water and forests and lakes and rivers it's it's a very very watery landscape. But yeah. I even, I remember I even told Miłosz this. I said, you know, the Bay Area, it's my Chetania, you know, it's, that's where I grew up. That's where the, you know, eucalyptus trees look familiar to me. Although they are not from California. Yeah, know. but I said nothing <laughs> in California. But he knew what was, this is what I really noticed with him. And this was where his Lithuanianness 
shows up really beautifully when you read them kind of from multiple perspectives is no one in California would see California the way he does. And what he does, he knows like the minute he hits American soil, in the 40s in fact, he sees a landscape saturated in history. He has this myth that he's inherited and that he plays with and brings up now and then of, you know, California and America. It's all wild nature. It's where you go and... Yeah, and like in the Tractat Poetitsky, he's like, like America is all about nature. The, but he says it. Yes. But oh. at the same time, I remember there's one passage, and this is the treatise on poetry, where he's describing Lithuanian folk dances, and he has... Sometimes he'll have words in two languages in the original, or three languages sometimes even, and he says square dance... Um, and what's it, Kovavrut? Yeah, he, he gives square dance as a synonym, and square dance is American folk. Mm-hmm. So he's playing them against each other, and this is, and he, he loves Native Americans from childhood. You know, his Lithuania is saturated in American romanticism. He loved Cooper. James Vanuel Cooper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the Polish poet's view of America? What is American myth for Polish poets who have been there? It's really different from poet to poet, especially because, as Miłosz never ceases to remind us, the country is just too damn big. It starts with Norvid, with the 19th century, who came to New York, and he he failed, and he returned to Europe. So it starts badly, you know, the the, uh, but then... And then Sienkiewicz, to, to move way far away from poetry, you know, travels around in America, and America ends up being part of... The thing is... This is something I'm just interested in as as an Irish-American obsessed with Polish stuff. But the the American-Polish connection goes back to Romanticism, where Mickiewicz was translating Emerson and New Margaret Fuller. And, yeah, and she fell in love with him. Yeah, yeah. and there are all these rumors, gossip. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't go there. No. But the, there's this exchange through Romanticism, you know, and that Miłosz says, you know, his he was brought up on American romanticism, the myth of nature, and, and play, Whitman, playing his Natty Bumpo in Lithuania. You know? And then Whitman, who was yeah. such, such, such an important figure for Miros, but also for many other Polish poets. He was yeah. discovered along with, you know, the French poets discovered Whitman in late 19th century. The same happened in Poland. He was quite early translated into Polish, and he, he influenced some Polish poets. And, and Miros admired him endlessly. So I think there's there's multiple myths, and so much of it depends on where they landed. But on check, it's about New England. You know, his post, you know, it's yeah. really exile. It's not, it wasn't immigration, it was exile. He got stranded in the States because of martial law. His America is, is New England, and everything else is a bit exotic. But for him, he has beautiful poems that we tried to translate. They're very difficult to translate. About one is called Sailing to Sutton Island, about going to an island in Maine that they would go to on vacation every year, and it's like passages through time. And but again, Baranchek knows American poetry so well that you're getting reminiscences on multiple levels even there. But his is New England, and Herbert writes mainly about California, doesn't he? Yeah, he has these images about the redwood tree. Yeah, and the poem, the, 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 yeah. The, But it's interesting. He's seeing California as, um, through the redwood tree as a very ancient place, right? Yeah. Because the redwood tree becomes the, the synonym of, of ancient um, land, of, of the, the oldness of, the, of, of memory. 
So it's a very unusual image of America because for many European writers, America is the opposite of memory. And right? Miłosz does that too, even with the anti-memory. But I, I love those things especially because the, the poem about the sequoia, he's looking at a sequoia I remember from my childhood, the one that sliced all the way through and yeah. says, Columbus landed yes, here and yeah. this land. Exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, but they're both... Especially Miłosz, because he spent so long in California. It's 40 years. I mean, it's more than half of his creative life. He read about it. He read obsessively. You can find... I'm always making little notes when I'm reading Miłosz where I write research, question mark, because since he's a poet, he doesn't have to do footnotes. But you can tell he just read a book on... He goes to Hawaii. This is one of my favorite things in, in The Year of the Hunter. He goes to Hawaii for vacation, and this is a Miwosh vacation. He's reading a book about German consideration of the post-partition, you know, whatever, something like that on the beach. Oh, my gosh, only Miwosh. But then he also goes into a long disquisition on the history of the islands and the history of colonization and colonization among Polynesian peoples and brutality and so forth, and then the brutality imposed by the West. But he he's... He's read about it, and he's, he sees the whole landscape saturated through one wave of conquests of tiny peoples after another, and what little traces of language get left, and then what happens when you have a Chinese overlay. And when you ha so he just does that everywhere, um, and he's brilliant at it in California. I remember when I was talking about it in Krasnogruda, the place where his mother's estate was. There was a conference there, and I was talking about how well he Study, how much he studied Native American histories because he saw them as analogous in some ways to Lithuania, which was the last country to be Christianized in, in Europe. But what, what you say, it confirms that, you know, the post-poets would come to this, to this country, to this continent, and they would project on it their own uh, sorrows and, and preoccupations. But they, they also saw sorrows that we didn't want to look at that are actually yeah. here. And, and what the, the organizer of the conference said, he's, I was saying something about all these Native American things. I was picking up out of Miwosh. And he said, you know, you know, when I went to Berkeley to see him and I said, what should we do? You know, what should we do for outings? He said the first thing Miwosh did is he drew from memory a map of all the Indian reservations that he'd driven to in the area. So he was seeing a landscape saturated in history that we've been trained by the myth of America to say, you know, virgin soil, it's all. So, But his is very much West Coast and Baranchak is East Coast and Herbert I don't know, he wasn't here long and he didn't really speak English well, he spent much too many months in, in LA. He was LA, you know, yeah. he was teaching in LA at the Los Angeles Community College, I guess. And he had the was an entire anecdote about this and more than an anecdote. He was supposed that this is a legend that he was supposed to be a professor at the California Institute of Technology. But that he it came to a fist fight with a dean because the dean had leftist, really extreme leftist ideas, which Herbert couldn't tolerate, and it came to a fistfight, and he lost his job. <laughs> and I don't know how true it is, because he, sometimes he invented his biography. But this is what he told the, the story. And he, he landed in this not very glorious school, which is the Los Angeles uh, Community College, and he had to teach youngsters who, who didn't know that much about you know, poetry. And, and I know that he spent, um, he was very uh, 
it was a huge challenge for him to, to do this teaching. But so he, he is in California. This was his place. Let me ask you one more question. We are talking about a very politically charged time, that time in the 20th century, and yet again and again the word myth comes up. What is the relationship between the two? How does it work for Polish poetry? Because in American poetry, myth and politics are completely separate. Well, but in America, you have Robinson Jeffers, who, who I think this is why Miłosz was so interested in, in Robinson Jeffers, that he had a similar structure of imagination, that he would respond to the world as he saw it, and he would impose on the world a, a very very complicated um, mythology in in you know in Lesbian it's different because it's he didn't he responded to the not so much to the political situation but to what he was seeing as a crisis of of the modern world in terms of of what what someone called the disinherited mind the mind of uh, you know the, the death of god and uh, the the secular world and uh, etc but I think you know when you, you your question is very good, and um, in the sense that you, when you are confronted with a very um, extreme political situation like World War II, you have to respond with something. You cannot be just a reporter. Well, Ruzevich is maybe the only poet who, who who didn't have any mythology. Who said, "No, I'm I'm not going to have a mythology. I I am an." interested in the naked poetry, in the poetry of which only registers the, the calamity. But I think it, there is this tendency in many poetries to come up with something, with a response, with, with a healing, with, and to keep this healing and, you know, in a balance with the terror of the world. So therefore, I, I think you have this mythic ingredient in, 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 in many Polish poets. The the other thing too, I think, with with myths, you find it a lot in Szymborska too, um, of taking you know myths or legends and rereading them. It's all the way through Herbert, but with both of them, one thing that always strikes me is that it's again this kind of perspective of going through the horror of World War Two, and then you know the the um, you know one occupation at one brutal occupation after another is. For writers who read incessantly in the Western tradition, the way both Szymborska and Hedbert in different ways did, it's that other thing of seeing a level that may not be available to other people, but also keeps them from mythologizing Poland as a nation or can help balance that instead of saying, we are the Christ of nations and Mickiewicz's, Mickiewicz's myth is saying, if this is what our civilization is doing at this moment, then what does that mean about Greek civilization? How And going back and recuperating, doing a lot of the stuff that new historicists claim to be doing now is really, I mean, the, the, the quote I always think of is, is Benjamin saying there's no document of civilization that is not always also a document of barbarism. Szymborska has one thing, it's not quite myth, but for some reason I've been thinking about, she has an early prose poem about the story of Lot, I was thinking of this poem too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. See, but it's a kind of a revisionist poem. Yeah. Right? The, well, she does a lot of revisionism, yeah. and the 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 thing about Lot is it it goes through the story of Lot. Everybody always forgets the ending. Is he gets handed back a new wife and a new family, and apparently that's fine, you know. It's, it's, and she says, you know, this happens to Lot. That happens to Lot. That happens to Lot. 
but we don't care. It's great poetry. You know, that's, that, that, how can you justify, you know, hideous brutality? And then I think she even has something, doesn't she, about the second family? Mm. Not in the poem. Not no, in the poem. No. I think maybe she wrote about it somewhere else. As I always say, that's so interesting. Everybody forgets that Lot just gets everything mm -hmm. given but, back. But the thing you said, I think it's so important to be, the, there's this, in a way, the, the, the Polish poets of the mid 20th century were confronted with a disaster, not unlike the disaster that the romantic Polish poets were confronted with. Yeah. And they were able not to make out of it a national thing. Yeah. Like not only the thing for us, it's not only ours. They were, I think this is the miracle of this poetry. Yes. That they were able to, to see this disaster as a universal disaster, not just about Poland, you know, Polishness, but about humanity. What does it mean to humans? What happened in Poland is not an isolated case of imperialism. It is something that has a validity for every reader. Also, both of them in, in, in some of their greatest poems, they managed to do it without overtly passing judgment one way or another. There's another wonderful Szymborska poem called Voices, Gose, that just has lists, and I'm, I checked them all when we were translating, lists of tiny, it's from, in the voice of a Roman writing back to somebody who's a, one of the, the imperial forces going out there, you know, crossing one boundary after another boundary after another boundary, and it's mainly just a gigantic list of little names of tribes that he keeps having to smush, and then these little Volscians, you know, they spring up like flies, and these, these, and he says, will it ever come to an end? The world has got to end somewhere. He's writing, but all it is is a list of tribes that none of us remember mm -hmm. anymore. Well, Herbert has a poem like this about yeah. Livy. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's Alexander Watt who writes oh, Mediterranean great one. poems. Yeah. And it, there's another myth. It's not quite a mythology. I, I think in this quest for mythologies, there is a need for continuity, for, for seeing the, the present history, the history of 20th century as not being a case in itself, but like this, there is a consolation that there's this ancient history, there were the Greeks, there were the Mediterranean disasters. So we are a chain, in the, a, a, an element of a long, long chain of, of human memory. And it, it brings some solace. It is the solace of educated people. I remember after 9-11, after I was teaching a big course for... Um, the Alumni Association on Polish history and Polish poetry. And we were all in shock because it had just happened. I had a class, I don't know, five or six days later or something. And it was wonderful because it was like retired people and just people who wanted to come there. And some of them were Polish background and some of them were Eastern European Jewish background, which meant everybody was always fighting with me about something, but it made it very interesting. Um, and I always said, you know, I'm Irish Catholic. I'm out of here. You know, it's not my fight. But this one lady, I don't even, I don't remember who she was. She brought up Herbert's poem to Marcus Aurelius um, at the end of the class. And she said, could you just read it for us? So I read it out loud. And what's wonderful about that poem is he's saying, you're irrelevant, Marcus Aurelius, but why is he talking to him? You know, what is the last line? Like, turn out the light or something? But he, he didn't turn out the light. He put the light back on him, you know, and that this lady recognized that in this poem that was about saying it was useless. There was no reason for you to write, you know, your, your meditations, Marcus Aurelius. But here I am writing to you about why you shouldn't have written them. And she kind of recognized that was 
this mixed gesture of, of despair and incredible hope. And it isn't it amazing that anybody's even reading this guy? Yeah, I love it. It's a very beautiful poem. But also in this poem, he, he says, you, Marcus Aurelius, and you're Latin. It is a mistake. Actually, he wrote his, his um, meditations in Greek. And he never changed it. Yeah, and it's so interesting that this is the poet's erudition. A poet can be mistaken. It doesn't change anything for the no, poem. The poem no. is still wonderful. But it's a poem with an error. <laughs> it's so interesting to have this, you know, poetry with an, an erudite would never make this mistake. But a poet is a... A drunken erudite, right? It's, it's, it's a different approach to... Well, it's like Cortez discovering the Pacific in Keats's <laughs> first published poem, you know? <laughs> well, Marcus Aurelius, um, there is a lot of conversation usually when we speak about Polish poetry, about how Polish poetry influenced American poetry, of course. What I would like to ask you is, what was Polish poetry influenced by? Well, the most obvious answer is the, is the image of Milos in the occupied Warsaw with the wasteland in his pocket. He was, he had this, this was an interesting moment in the Polish poetry because, you know, like all the non-great nations, not the great European cultural nations like the French, the Germans, the, uh, the, all the small, smaller European nations had always had this one culture that they would look up to. And for Polish poets for a long well, this was the, the Latin poetry first, the Virgil, but later was the French poetry. And in the la late 30s, the early 40s, there's a change is the English language poetry that comes to replace the, the French poetry as a model. And Milos is a pioneer. And he, he's, he actually, you know, he was fluent in French and he learns English after he knew French very well. He's learning English to read Auden and, and Eliot. So it's a very strong influence of, of, of English-American poetry in, in Mewes and later in Herbert. And, and Herbert also reads Kavafis. And, uh, and Mewes too. Yeah. And Mewes too, yeah. So the, the Kavafi and Auden uh, and Eliot, these are the main influences, right? Pardon me, this is my hobby horse, but I was reading tons and tons of Mewes, and any time he mentioned a translation he did, I would just go get the original poem off the shelf and read what he said about translating. And they're phenomenal things. He, he, he did a passage from Paradise Lost in Krakow in 45. And he makes, he has a funny note there. He said, well, you know, of course, a lot of poets were interested in Milton and Krakow in 45. Good <laughs> Lord, you know. And it's a good translation. I compared it. I mean, he's, he's a very good translator. Yeah, and then his, for me, one of his most beautiful poems in Warsaw, is this poem written in 45, in the ruins of Warsaw, he mentions, mentions Shakespeare. He yeah. says, let not poets forget the joy. And he mentions Shakespeare. And, but he also mentions Shakespeare because he was just translating Shakespeare. So yeah. it's, it's a kind of working knowledge. It's not a, a, an abstract uh, allusion. Yeah, and and he he one reason he said he didn't he couldn't come back to Poland when he he broke with it is he said they won't even let me just make a living as a translator of Shakespeare. He he was working on Othello when he was at the Polish embassy in in Washington D.C. and he said I can't even just make a living translating Shakespeare. That's interesting because you mentioned Pasternak earlier, and of course for many years Pasternak made it. the only living he could make was as, as a translator yeah. of Shakespeare. And Ahmada was translating Shakespeare as well, Magba's student of the war. But let me move a little bit forward in time 
uh, where is Polish poetry now? And moreover, where would you like to see Polish poetry in the future? I don't know. I I, so I, I know, and but it's still in the making. It's not decided. But the younger generation, I you know, now I'm looked upon as an older poet, which I am. But you know, it's very hard to to adjust to this. There's a revolution in Polish poetry. The the, the younger generation, which is not young, the the poets around 50, 45, 50, they sort of revolted against the seriousness of Polish poetry. There's, there's this rebellion against Milos, against Herbert, against... Well, this, there was this group of younger poets who published, who had a magazine called Brulion, and they, they even established a kind of mock... Uh, I don't know, body, uh, anti-Herbert, the poets who hate Herbert. And it's very telling. They are bored with the seriousness. This is what made Polish poetry so strong and so readable and so uh, present in, uh, in different languages, in translations, but also in Polish, Poland itself. They rejected. They say, no, we want fun. We want to be like, like Frank O'Hara. Frank O'Hara for a long time uh, was for them the, the, the ultimate model of, of, of fun, having fun in poetry. I'm saying this and I, I know that it's not totally true. There are some other poets, but the dominant tone in the younger poetry is a, a poetry born out of resentment against older poets. Would you agree with this? I, th I think, and I think it's natural too. I mean, I yes, think what yeah. they had is this, you know, not just one generation, but a couple of generations of just tremendous poetry. You know, you you just think of these freak incidents, like how did British Romanticism get, you know, one or two is already amazing. They get, you know, six phenomenal poets, seven phenomenal poets, and and that's what post-war Polish poetry had, and now there's this this backlash and. I'm, you know, I used to have this principle when I started translating that I wouldn't translate anyone younger than me, and that rules out so many people by now that I can't do it anymore. But um, I kind of fell in love with a certain group of poets, and I, it's too late for me to... I don't have any reason to switch. I'm going to go back and translate Szymborska poems that we but, didn't but translate say, who, before. Who, who, who are the younger, the really younger poets who you are interested in? Can you say a few names or...? No. <laughs> no, I know some names, but the thing is, part of it is at a certain age you realize how much time it takes to read and then to even have a chance to reread something. And I, I just kind of tuned out. I read individual poems here and there that I like, but not enough to make me go out and read the whole book. And just as a backhanded compliment to Adam, when I heard him read To Go to Lvoof at Harvard, I went straight to the library and just checked out every book they had of him. So, but I, I don't know if that's partly. Then I was in my twenties, and now I'm way not in my twenties. And well, um, I think both international. But remember, you know, Russian poetry in the beginning of the twentieth century, Mayakovsky was drawing Pushkin off the board of the ship of Russian right, literature. Right, right. But yeah. at the same time, Akhmatova was writing, Khlebnikov was writing, Pasternak was writing, Svetayeva, and yeah. so forth. You know, there's no way to explain when you have that kind of blossoming of so many just extraordinary, very distinctive poetic voices at one time. But I still want to dig a little deeper with the question I asked it about the future of poetry, because 
just a moment ago we were speaking about so much violence and how poets responded to it with, with humanity, with literature. How does a poet respond in a time of sterility, which is capitalism? What is the lyric poet's response? Well, yes, it's sterility, but it's also freedom. You know, it's also democracy. I think it's it's the double, the ambivalence of of a, of a new system in Poland. It's a free democratic country, and it's a capitalist country, and it's it's much more difficult to make oneself, you know, to make up your, your mind. Will you be writing against greedy corporations? Not that many in Poland. Or will you be rather enthusing about um, freedom, about democracy, that the end of, of the censorship, the end of totalitarianism? It's true. You know, there's this beautiful poem by Herbert, Mr. Cogito, um, and the monster, about where he's saying that the Saint George was had a, a dragon to kill, but the, a modern poet goes out and and there's a fog, not a not a dragon, but a, a shapeless something. That the, so it's for poetry to to react against the shapeless something is of course much more difficult than than combating the dragons. But as you know, to answer the question about the future of poetry is impossible because it's totally unpredictable. Fortunately, fortunately, yes. because, you know, beware of fulfilled wishes. But the thing I, I wonder about, too, I mean, part of my in, engagement with all of this stuff is because I was in the Soviet Union studying in 77, 78, and then I was in Poland in 81 for the summer. And that's when I got to know, and Baranchak I met in 81, I guess. I was working on Mandelstam when I was in, in Leningrad when you couldn't get any Mandelstam. And I, I was, you know, trying to remember Gumilyov poems in my head because I couldn't find them anywhere. But I wonder about it now, too, because so much of the, the myth of Polish poetry in the States or in English language poetry has been about the poetry that, that survives and triumphs over oppression. Sometimes that would really irritate me because it struck me that American poets were, I called it borrowed martyrology, you don't suffer that way in capitalism. You suffer from different things. You, you, you know, you suffer from not having an audience. You suffer from having to figure out a way to be oppressed that other people will even care about. There are poets that drove me crazy because they would be doing persona poems from every place in the third world because just being an American poet teaching at a university in the United States and being frustrated and feeling other people's pain. And having a Guggenheim fellowship. Yeah, yeah. It's how do you do it? So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, but I'm also a little frightened about how it's it's a new phase. It's a different but phase. But remember, on the other side, Miroslav Holub, living in Europe during communism and so forth, was still quite um, inspired by some, say, somebody like William Carlos Williams. Of course, yeah. Well, and it's always happening like that, and that's the thing you love to see. Because I, I even have my a pet theory about a Miłosz poem that was never translated and was one of his his Wiersze uh, Rozproszone, you know, the scattered poems that never came up in a collection. And it was absolutely clear to me as somebody who fell deeply in love with Frank O'Hara when I was about 15. He, he has a poem where he's walking down the street in Berkeley and he stops in one of the great bookstores and he pulls a book off the shelf and he reads it and it's a translation. And isn't this a neat translation? And I'm going to translate the translation. It's a Frank O'Hara poem. And Miłosz mm. is absorbing all these influences. I mean, he's such a polymorphous poet in that way. That was Claire Kavanaugh speaking with Adam Zagajewski and the director of the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute, Ilya Kaminsky. 
This program was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on October 12, 2012, as part of International Poets in Conversation, and was sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. Adam Zagajewski has several volumes of poetry available in English, including Unseen Hand, Without End, New and Selected Poems, and Eternal Enemies, all translated by Clara Kavanaugh. Zagajewski's prose collections include Two Cities on Exile, History, and the Imagination, and the memoir Another Beauty. In addition to her many translations of Polish poetry, Claire Kavanaugh's book Lyric Poetry and Modern Politics, Russia, Poland, and the West, won the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism in 2010. You can learn more about Adam Zagajewski and Claire Kavanaugh and read some of their work by visiting poetryfoundation.org, where you'll also find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.